0: Check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the vehicle auction giant, Copart. You may be unfamiliar with Copart, but at the time of this recording, the company has a $40 billion market cap. They operate in over 200 locations across the globe, and they sell north of 3 million cars per year on behalf of their unique customer base. Copart is a unique story in a very concentrated industry where they likely have 50% market share. It's a story defined by evolution. Its founder, Willis Johnson, didn't merely adopt a junkyard mentality. He was born into it, molded by it. To break down Copart, I'm joined by Adam Mead, head of Mead Capital Management. We cover all the angles of this unique industry giant. Please enjoy this breakdown of Copart. All right, Adam, Copart is not a household name. So we're going to start this breakdown a little bit differently than some others. We had Lululemon out today. I think pretty much every one of our listeners is familiar with Lululemon. Copart, not so much the case it's something as I was doing my research, I read claims such as it's the monopoly you've never heard of. It's the deepest moat I've ever come across. Maybe just start out with the actual business of Copart and what they do.
0: Sure. I have to give my friend Andrew Wagner credit for this term. He calls it the undertaker of the car industry, which I think just encapsulates Copart very well. They facilitate the end of life of a vehicle, so vehicles that completely total, they need dismantling to maybe used cars that are at their end of life that get resold in the United States or perhaps a lot of their cars end up overseas where repair laws are less strict. So it's this two sided network between sellers who are typically insurance companies and Literally hundreds of thousands of buyers located around the world. So they sit in the middle of this and facilitate this auction network of vehicles at the end of their life. It's a win-win-win, really, because they're maximizing the economic value of the vehicle. So whether it's whole or part, that vehicle... Can be dismantled or sold in whole, and it provides tremendous value for both buyers and sellers. So they've been able to extract some nice economic rents and build a nice little moat for themselves.
1: And how big is that market that they operate in?
0: So it's hard to pinpoint exactly. Copart does about three and a half billion annually in dollar sales. They don't like to pinpoint it, which again is a little E to the companies that are always trying to tell you how big of a market share they have. The ones that maybe aren't that strong, they go out of their way to avoid it. Between Copart's major competitor and Copart, they control about 80% of the market. Copart's probably around 50%. So it might be about a 7 to $10 billion industry annually.
1: You mentioned it's this marketplace. So maybe we start on the supply side. If I get into a car accident, let's say it's totaled, how is my car getting into Copart's system? what's the process there?
0: You get into an accident, it renders your car, you know, undriveable, not necessarily totaled, but undrivable. The insurance company needs to inspect that vehicle to determine the damage, whether it's worth repairing or not. So that's where Copart steps in. They have relationships sometimes exclusively with certain insurers or certain regions. Let's just say, just use round numbers. If your vehicle's worth $10,000, if it costs them $5,000 to repair, they'll pay that $5,000, they're out five. But if Copart could sell that vehicle for $6,000, now they'll deem it a totaled loss, compensate you for it. And if they could get $6,000, now they're only out net $4,000. So in some ways, it's counterintuitive. Copart has created this network. The more that they can get for these cars, the more liquidity that, that they create, the more they can create this two-sided network, it actually increases total rates for the insurance companies because it, it makes economic sense for them. It costs a lot of money for the insurance companies to come out, inspect the car, do estimates. Copart is now marketing themselves to the insurance companies saying, hey, we can come in here. We could do this all electronically. We can use, in some cases, AI, essentially, in an instant tell you whether or not it's worth totaling this car or not. So there's a level of trust there between Copart and the insurance companies.
1: We'll go into a little bit more on the supplier side of things, but quickly, when they are assessing that value that they can get, who's on the other side of the marketplace in terms of buying the parts or perhaps buying the entire vehicle? What's the demand side of the marketplace look like?
0: Literally hundreds of thousands of people access their their worldwide network Could be a company like lkq which is a dismantler they're buying these totaled cars they're saying okay you know this thing is worth this much copart provides an incredible amount of information for buyers they do 360 degree photographs of the inside the outside so they could assess okay if it's front end or rear end collision okay i know the the engine's probably fine and they can quickly estimate how much they can get dismantling the vehicle and selling it for pieces sell the rest for scrap there might be buyers overseas. About two thirds of vehicles are purchased outside of the state that they're, they originate in. And that includes about 36% international buyers. And so you have this dynamic of the US, just use the US specifically as a very developed market, a very high vehicles to population ratio. A lot of vehicles make their way to a low vehicles to population ratio countries that are developing. They need vehicles. They might not have the same repair laws that the United States has. And so they're economically valuable even if they're 20 years old and they have a couple hundred thousand miles on them.
1: A lot of Toyotas out there. Yeah, probably. (laughs) In the outer countries. So I understand it. Is Copart actually doing any of the dismantling themselves or are they largely selling those cars into dismantlers?
0: The business started out in the very early days. Willis Johnson started out as a dismantler. Today, they're just providing that auction mechanism. In some cases, they will, they've found, in particular with the insurance companies, they have now incentivized themselves. They've aligned their incentives with the insurance companies to take for a, a fixed percentage or a fixed fee. Copart will take on the responsibility of towing and listing the vehicle. And so they're incented. In some cases, they will actually conduct minor repairs to the vehicles to increase that selling price, which then helps them. It helps the insurance company. So other than some of that work that they do, they don't really get into that nitty gritty. They're really trying to provide that turnover, getting those vehicles through the system. I highly recommend the book, Junk to Gold by founder Willis Johnson. I mean, he talks about you can see him hit these bottlenecks in the business. Investing in computers, he spent I think forty thousand dollars creating a system for the California DMV because he was doing three hundred cars a day out of this one location back in the day. And every single car, remember, has a title. That title has to be tracked and paperwork. And so, to his benefit, to create the system that also helped the rest of California. And of course, now we see this everywhere, where they integrate with the DMV to make it nice and easy.
1: I probably waited too long to ask about Willis Johnson. He seems like a larger than life character, non-traditional backstory. Can you walk through his career, when he started the business, how involved he's been, some of those key decisions he's made over time?
0: His story is the story of the industry in many ways, so it's fascinating. He did start in the 70s, he actually grew up, his father had a, called it a dismantling yard, but it's a junkyard where they'd break down the cars for parts and they would sell the carcasses basically for scrap. Eventually he went off, again, the book is just fascinating, but he went off went to all different things. He went off to Vietnam, came back, wanted to start his own business. He actually lived in a trailer on one of the properties, his first venture. I mean, really just bootstrap. But he had these ideas, and one of the reasons why he broke away from his father was he had all these ideas for improving the business. And as when he went away and then came back, one of the places he worked was a grocery store and retail, and he could see that a nice, and this is part of his military background too, a nice orderly system, a nice orderly store would increase sales. And so even being a junkyard, he would paint the floors white every single year and organize the rows very cleanly and organize the parts and clean them for people. In the olden days, it was just ripping apart the cars. They were greasy, looking for parts. That was part of it. He did specialize. One of his areas was specializing in Chrysler parts. He borrowed this model from someone in LA and elsewhere. This guy in LA was doing Chevrolet and he said, well, if I can specialize in Chrysler, I can essentially, they were the low value brand, but by specializing, it allowed him to create a larger market. And so he supplied a couple of taxi companies with their parts. We saw that Chrysler was shutting down a certain manufacturing plant. So we called up Lee Iacocca and bought a bunch of parts in bulk I mean, the early days, he would get on the phone and tell everybody in the industry, okay, I have these parts or these parts just came in. Eventually, they were faxing something like 8,000 pages a day to various locations, just driving volume. He was very entrepreneurial and he was not afraid to take risks. People thought he was crazy when he invested over $100,000 in a computer system. Here's a junkyard investing over $100,000, you know, probably multiples of what a house would cost back in those days to track his inventory. And you just take that model and just repeat it. They were the first created this online auction bidding. They've had various iterations of these. Today, we're up to VB3, Virtual Bidding 3. When the pandemic hit, they were 100% ready. They did not miss a beat because they had already had it set up. You can see the evolution of the business from dismantling to parts to totaled cars. And now today they're moving into more of light accidents or even whole cars, which is one of the reasons why the stock price has really taken off. People have realized the value of their network.
1: It strikes me that the salvage business and selling parts, dismantling for parts would be pretty capital intensive if you were calling up a Chevy plant and trying to take some of that inventory off of them. You need the capital to buy those cars up front. How was the business financed early on? It sounds like he made a lot of big investments. Did they go public early on? Did they have a lot of financial backers? I'm curious because it seems like similar to a grocery store, the working capital management, inventory management is super important here. How did they do it in those early days?
0: I don't have the early financials, but He realized that volume was key, and that's why he would pick up the phone and call all of these places, letting them know he had the parts. But when he specialized, it went from something like $3,500 a month, again, show you, this was 40, 50 years ago, $3,500 a month to $3,500 a day in volume. So he could see that the more throughput you had through the system, the more turnover you had, the better the economics. One of the benefits of specializing in Chrysler, again, it was this third tier brand, all the other junkyards were, okay, fine, we'll happy to sell you these vehicles that aren't moving on our lots, but combine them. And now he's the go-to guy for Chrysler and is able to supply everyone who needs it. And so he was very tuned to, to the turnover aspects of the business.
1: Yeah, it's super important. It makes sense with the grocery analogy, I think, in terms of connecting the two businesses and how important that is. As time has gone on, it seems like the model has shifted. You mentioned they're different than their competitor in the sense that they had the digital auction ready to go. What else differentiates them today? I assume they're not specialized anymore. Maybe they're just specialized across the board. But what else differentiates them from the competition?
0: Their main competitor is a company called IAA Insurance Auto Auctions. That business was actually just bought a company called Ritchie up in Canada. But and what's really cool about Copart is the business is the industry in many ways, so studying it you can see how it's evolved. Very broad characterization. Copart is the entrepreneurial take risks but slow where they need to be not worried about pleasing Wall Street. And then you have IAA, which was, okay, we have to do things the Wall Street way, show returns. It's, I think, most visible in their real estate strategy. So Copart owns a ton of land. The business is called vehicle remarketing. It's a junkyard. That's a nice quaint term, vehicle remarketing. No one wants a junkyard in their backyard. So you have this NIMBY effect, not my backyard, where the industry lends itself to a natural duopoly. No one cares when a fourth food company goes in next to McDonald's and Wendy's and Burger King, but you're not going to have five different junkyards in your town. But Copart went about the business buying their land. They saw the value in the business. They're literally thinking 20, 30, 40, 50 years out. They can see, especially now with inflation, they don't have rental costs increasing because of that, where IAA went initially with a capital light, quote unquote, capital light strategy of let's lease these parcels of land. And that may make sense on paper, at least initially, but as time goes on, you can see essentially this, I like to think of it as a railroad tracks. They have this incredible infrastructure that's not replicable. If you gave me a couple billion dollars and tried to compete with them, they just couldn't do it. One, just the sheer scale of the business and the network and all that. But two, the business requires land, and that's just part and parcel to the business. It cannot be capital light. It's most pronounced in areas where hurricanes, for example, where thousands upon thousands of vehicles need to be towed. These insurance companies have huge claims and the cars just need to get somewhere. And so that somewhere are these yards that Copart owns and manages. It's just a crucial part of the business. And as they've built the business, they've gained density. So that's one of the reasons why they're taking on some of the risk from the insurance company of towing, because as they've gone about building the business, they've filled in their network. And so more yards, less distance for towing, less towing costs and so forth. Willis Johnson was very attuned to the fact that creating this liquidity on both sides was the key to building the business. And and that's really the playbook.
1: When I think about overall supply, you were describing some of it there, which brought it to light. Hurricanes could cause all this type of damage. What are the biggest drivers of supply? When I came into this conversation, I just assumed it was car accidents. And that was primarily where they were getting their supply of cars. But do you have some sense of they move X amount of cars in a given year? What percentage is coming from accidents versus natural disaster versus cars that are just old age and being retired?
0: They don't give us that an amount of detail. About 80% of their business is through insurance companies. The market, 5 million cars a year or something. But you sort of have this basic formula of miles driven times accident frequency, times accident severity, times loss or totaled rate. Just that one segment of insurance losses. There's two aspects of it. There's the insurance accident loss rates, which is tied to that formula I just mentioned. But even just purely miles driven is going to cause an increase in supply because cars wear out and it becomes uneconomical, at least in the United States, to keep maintaining that vehicle. They do have another aspect of their business that they're growing. They call it blue car, which is banks and finance companies and fleets and rentals. And it's a different market. It's really interesting when you get into these businesses to see all the little nuances. Okay. A car is a car, but so you have the insurance market again, about 80% of their business. There's five insurance companies in the United States that control 50% of the market. So you have quite a strong counterparty there on this blue car business there are thousands and thousands of different banks, and all of them have different procedures for how they go about loan payoffs, title transfer, and all of these little nitty gritty things that you have to get into in the back end as part of the business. But that's an area where Copart will start to leverage this network that it's created. And so you have this huge number of buyers on the one side, that's going to allow them to attract these sellers essentially from banks and and dealerships. And even for people I mentioned at the beginning, they, they do have a consumer facing front. And recently we replaced one of the cars in our household and I called Copart for a quote. They were pretty low. They were about $500 higher than the dealer, but pretty low. I ended up selling the car myself because I could get more in a private sale, but they were tenacious. The guy was just following up very regularly. You know, How's this looking? I mean, they're just very diligent in, again, just looking at it through that model of gaining liquidity for the system. All these different fronts is how they do it. And in some cases, they'll actually buy cars for their own account. I mean, that's one piece of the business you talked about, turnover and so forth. In most cases, they are not buying the cars from the insurance companies. They're just acting as agent. In some markets. And even in the US, they will buy cars just to increase liquidity of their auctions. But by and large, the business capital intensive from a standpoint of needing land and so forth, but not for actually buying these vehicles. I think that's an important point.
1: Yeah. Maybe we can jump into that a little bit in terms of the actual transaction. You have insurance company approaches Copart, Copart looking for the demand on the other side of the market, what does that look like in terms of the economics that they would keep from any type of transaction that took place and it sounds like they're not putting up any dollars themselves or taking on any risk with ownership of the vehicle so what does the cash flow flow through look like for copart specifically
0: yeah so about 80% of their revenue comes from buyer's fees actually and only to about 20% from the sellers so on, on the seller side they take, again, depending on the arrangement with the insurance company, or even in a particular market, they might have a fixed fee or a percentage of that, the ultimate sale that comes to them. It typically works out to like $150 to $200 per car for the typical insurance company. The buyers pay a fee. It ranges based on the selling price. So $25 to $800 up to $15,000 sales price. So if you work the percentages out, smaller value purchase would be somewhere between 30 to 50% of the sale price. But as you get into the higher value stuff, it might be 7%. I think that's where it caps out is about 7% of the sales price.
1: I assume that this is just... The concentration of the supply base versus the fragmentation of the demand base is what drives that eighty twenty. Is there anything else going on there? Makes sense just in terms of logic and, and finance, but anything else that's driving that big delta between buyer's fees and seller's fees?
0: Just a few on one side and many on the other.
1: In terms of costs, some costs of goods sold round salespeople and everything else that runs a corporation... But do they take on additional costs? You mentioned they'll take on the responsibility of towing. Is that something that they get paid back for first? What other costs do they have associated with the actual sale and movement of the vehicle?
0: So the car will get towed to one of their yards. And so they'll have direct, they have a towing fleet of their own, or they'll pay a third party to tow the vehicles to their yards. So it's essentially a function of fuel and labor own the land so they don't have to pay for for rent their building on site. They might have to pay depreciation, essentially. They'll do minor cleaning or minor repairs and cleaning of the cars. They'll have to take photographs of the vehicle. They'll have to post it online. They'll have to do the DMV paperwork, which again is largely electronic these days. You know, if you look at their balance sheet, I think they have about $100 million investment software, capitalized software that they've created in-house to allow all of this. All of these upfront costs get capitalized into an account. It's called vehicle pooling costs. So it's, it's essentially an inventory. So they do have an inventory line on their balance sheet for those vehicles that they purchase for their own account. But this vehicle pooling cost is essentially their inventory. These costs that they're fronting upfront before the sale is made. It takes about 45 to 60 days all in to get a car through their system, which again is the need for so much land.
1: 45 to 60 days for it to turn over, basically come into their system and then be sold.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. could take a couple days, might sit on their yard and then the insurance company has to do something with it. Okay. we we'll give you the go ahead to do this and just running through the DMV, having the auction, having it shipped to the ultimate buyer generally uh, a 45 to 60 day window.
1: I know it's going to be somewhat of a blurry metric to calculate. I'm curious how much inventory they typically carry throughout the year, how much of that line item, what that looks like compared to revenue or whatever other metric you'd be looking to use. How often do they get stuck with inventory that just sits on the lot or in the yard?
0: They can turn it over. The vehicle pooling costs, that will get assigned essentially to each vehicle that gets turned over. So that's going to move through the system quickly. If you listen to conference calls, I mean, they'll talk about, especially now in particular, the volatility in used car prices. They are today less willing to take risks with their own account and own vehicles. So it, it can fluctuate. They don't have traditional turnover in the sense of having a nice, clean cost of goods sold line and so forth. If you just do a uh, blunt back of the envelope, total inventory, inventory being inventory and vehicle pooling costs divided by revenue, it's something like 20 days worth of inventory Again, you don't have a cost of goods sold figure there. So that's really the capital requirements of the business, the land, and then you have the capital tied up in inventory and some receivables.
1: That makes sense. And not an unreasonable number to have in terms of days. As you look at the margin profile of the business, maybe you could separate the 80% versus the 20%. But what does that look like on a normalized basis? And if you want to separate the two different business lines, that'd be helpful as well.
0: You can look at it in four quadrants. So they have service revenues, which are these auctions for others. They're acting as an agent. And then they have vehicle sales, which are- Their own inventory. Their own inventory. And then that is further delineated between the US and international. US is about 85% of the business, international about 15%. US, they make about a 40% EBIT margin. Internationally, it's about half of that, low to mid 20s percent. And that's a function of density and the scale that they have in the US. Their international markets range from the UK, Germany, some of the Nordic countries. They have some business in Brazil. They haven't built out that density that they have in the United States. But their GNA expense, it's really interesting to see the business. It's very clear to see how the business is scaling. 10 years ago, G&A expense was maybe 13% today. Their third quarter, I think they were down around 5.5% for G&A expense as a percentage of revenue. So that's the playbook is increase that scale. You see yard operations expense decline less so, but that again is a function of density and they have more locations, less towing costs and and so forth. And then just these investments that they've made over time in the business to make it more efficient. They can stick a little camera in the middle of the car and the thing takes all these pictures. That might save a huge amount of time compared to the old days where they had to manually do it or not do it at all.
1: How does the earnings profile of the business compare to free cash flow? We've talked a little bit about capital intensity of the business, but are you seeing pretty good free cash flow conversion? Any percentages or ways that you think about it? And what does the CapEx budget look like on a year-to-year basis? Is it some percentage of sales or are they having very lumpy, big real estate outlays? What goes into that?
0: Cash conversions is good. Again, you read the financial statements. They're very clean. It fluctuates. It's not a business that's nice and linear. I mean, if you get a hurricane, a hurricane Ian recently, they're going to invest a huge amount of time and money to get those cars. They try to aim to have 20 to 25% capacity in the business. So organic growth or a hurricane hits and they need all of this room to store these vehicles, they want to have some extra space. In some cases, they have to actually spend money and rent temporary space to house these vehicles. So from year to year, quarter to quarter, things will fluctuate depending on hurricanes, which again, rent space, they might have to pay more in towing. They might have to pay overtime for their people to get it done. It's just so refreshing to see is they focus on the customer. I mean, they're not saying, okay, well, geez, we're not going to take this on because it might hurt us this quarter or something. I mean, they really focus on Typically, with a hurricane, it's the insurance companies. We need to get these done. We need to get them done almost at all costs, which helps them win business down the road. Earlier, you asked about what differentiates them. I love listening to the conference calls or reading them. And so their CapEx budget, I think, is something like 350 million, something like that. They will invest a huge amount in land. It drives analysts nuts. This is why I love it well, geez, what kind of return have you gotten on these land purchases? And they say, we don't know. We don't calculate it. They know that there is an incredible value owning this land over time. And so they will make acquisitions of sites when it makes sense. They will purchase new land and do greenfield expansion when it makes sense. They know that this is a key thing for their business. And so they're unafraid of making these investments and telling Wall Street about it. I mean, it is just so refreshing to hear this on the conference calls. They know their business inside and out. I mean, in some cases, they'll even say, geez, you guys look at this number, but we don't really track it. We don't really care about it, but here you go. That's what drives it. And ultimately, again, just getting back to capital requirements, pretty good margins, consolidated 40% all-in margin. If you look across the business over time... I typically go back at least 10 years. You see about a very linear relationship between revenues and capital employed. It's about a dollar. So every dollar in revenue is generally going to require a dollar of capital. It just kind of works out. It's nice and clean. Dollar in incremental revenue at 40% margin, you're going to get a a 40% pre-tax return. It's pretty simple and Willis Johnson's now executive chairman. You have the second and third generation of management in there today, and they've picked up on this ethos. They just know this is how you run the business. It's very simple. They're really looking to, again, 20, 30 years down the road, handling this volume that they see coming, which doesn't seem like it's going to abate. One of the key drivers is that total loss ratio, which is ticked up over time. Another kind of key part of the business. I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but as it relates to it, about 20% of vehicles are totaled. As cars become more expensive to repair, all of these sensors that are in them, that, that total ratio, they see it continuing to go up as far as the eye can see. A function of technology, but also a function of themselves being there, being able to get more for a vehicle, it's going to increase that total rate. There's all these number of factors that interrelate and interact. It's not always easy to say, X happens, Y is going to happen.
1: Yeah, I guess that was a question that I did have, which is, and this could be coastal ignorance. But if I step back, I think less cars on the road, or it certainly seems like there's less cars on the road. You have some exchange of people instead of buying a second or a third car, taking more Ubers. You have two people decide to do that, even though there's an additional Uber vehicle. It's just a change in the utilization. You also seemingly have less accidents with cars and some of their sensors now. So that seems like it would be headwinds for this business, but they've grown revenue substantially each of the past four or five years. I was very shocked to see the continuous growth. So what are the main drivers there? Is it that loss ratio which you described, which makes sense logically and something I've experienced where... A bumper fell off and all of a sudden the car was totaled and I was scratching my head a little bit. Is there anything else that's been a major driver of growth for them?
0: That is a big part of it. And you hit on something that's key, which is if you don't have a vehicle, the Uber is still putting on the miles. That's still going to increase the risk of that Uber driver getting into an accident or at the very least, for sure, more miles on that vehicle is going to wear out that vehicle. But the business has evolved from junk cars dismantling and all of that to today where they're putting through their system because of the liquidity, because they're so efficient at it, because of the network into less damaged vehicles and even in some cases, whole cars. So now they're potentially competing in that market. In 2017, they purchased a power sports, auctioneer, national power sports, NPA. So they've gotten into motorcycles and small recreational vehicles. It just makes sense that as they have this incredible platform, as they're looking to add more volume, whole car seems to make sense. And again, banks that are repossessing cars that are otherwise drivable and perfectly fine, fleets, rentals that are just at the end of their life. It just makes sense to leverage that network. That equation, I mean, Americans just love driving cars and you see these dynamics in the city, but vehicle miles have have remained pretty elevated over time. And so you, you have this basic population growth as a natural offset to that headwind that you mentioned of maybe using some more Ubers and so forth. Autonomous vehicles, which could potentially take a couple of decades to really be a threat to this business
1: do they offer financing to buyers?
0: Confident the answer is no. I would think that is something that they're evaluating and they may just take the stance that, hey, we're we're a network, we're a vehicle remarketer, we're not in the finance business. Listen to these conference calls, Wall Street, well, geez, you know, have you gone to this or could there be ancillary services that you could provide to fleets or something or wax the cars or something? Everybody has all these ideas of what they could do and they ton. One of the things that they're very good at is sticking true to their core principles, which you look in the balance sheet today, they have $2.1 billion worth of cash. I mean, that could burn a hole in a manager's pocket. They've been very disciplined at using cash and deploying it and returning it to shareholders as well.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I imagine all those angry analysts on the call would prefer that they're buying shares and not buying land or paying out dividends. What does the dividend share buyback history look like? And do they have a stated goal or stated philosophy behind that?
0: So they don't pay dividends. They have never paid a dividend. They first look to the organic growth of the business. So that's investing in land technology, developing their technology that they're not afraid to spend on that. And then you see these periodic buybacks, pretty meaningful buybacks, maybe 5% of shares outstanding. They haven't bought back shares, gosh, probably in three or four years now. But if you look back over the past decade, you see these pockets of chunks of big buybacks happen. And they don't know. And that's another thing. They're not afraid to say, we don't know. And we know that there are going to be opportunities. We know that historically, we've been able to deploy this capital. They're largely unapologetic about the way that they've operated. And the history bears it out. They have the track record to stand on.
1: When you think about risks to this business, I think you've mentioned environmental risks with hurricanes. That's obviously something that could cause a hiccup. I'm sure they get insurance for it, but that seems like one thing. I'm curious what else is out there that has historically caused the shares to sell off or the business to be under threat And then what you think about a go-forward basis in terms of risks and threats to the business?
0: Well, the hurricanes, I mean, to the extent that climate change is increasing hurricanes, that's going to cause, it's going to be a tailwind for them because they're going to have, say, more flooding events and so
1: forth. Doesn't it impact their junkyards though, too?
0: It's mostly land. The buildings almost only there just house the people and some tools and stuff. And of course, I'm simplifying, but Storing vehicles on a big plot of land if a hurricane hits, okay, it's a little bit messier or muddier, but it's not going to impact them to the extent of, say, a home that's insured or an office building that gets flooded with all this technology and nice things in it. You know, you're talking about a garage basically, but slowing growth, they are 50% of the market, pretty saturated. I think they still have a good runway ahead of them international. I mean, it just makes sense for them to go overseas. They entered the UK market, I think 2005, something like that. In some of the markets that they've entered, they've had to, UK is a good example. They've had to purchase cars for their own account to prove that the system works. So there's always a risk that they go in there, essentially create this market, And competitor comes up and says, okay, insurance companies, you've seen that it works. Copart has done the work for us. We're going to step in and offer something that's competitive. I think net, the international opportunity that they have far outweighs risks in those areas that I just mentioned. Autonomous vehicles, I mentioned that a couple of minutes ago. I think that's still a long way off. We've seen how counterintuitively okay more sensors on a car okay they're going to be safer and get into less accidents but it actually causes the total rate to go up so
1: what causes the total rate to go up
0: because of the technology so if you have a bunch of sensors they've seen this total rate has just continued to tick up over time if every single vehicle was communicating with one another and everything was autonomous you wouldn't have this so that's like the, the the ultimate threat but as we stand today. Even if tomorrow, say Tesla comes out with their fully autonomous vehicles, 100% safe, perfect, it's going to take 15 or 20 years to cycle that technology through the car park, this term for how many vehicles are on the road. It's just going to take a long time for those vehicles to get through. Even after then, just think about the business. If all of the US was autonomous vehicles and one of them gets into an accident or someone backs into something and where they don't work. That vehicle might still be worth something to someone overseas in a developing country that, okay, we don't need all these sensors. We just need a vehicle because we need to drive 20 miles a day. You can still make the case that their network is still valuable in that case. So I have no clue how that's going to play out. It's certainly a risk. I do I can't quantify it. I haven't adjusted for it. I think it's going to develop probably slower than people think and differently. And the business can adapt. I think the biggest thing that they've proven is having this network.
1: I don't know how much you study the insurers themselves and how this big shift has impacted them. But in a previous world, I get an accident, my bumper falls off, they give me a check to fix the bumper, they jack up my insurance rates, and there's some type of payback that they get based on that. In this new world, cars totaled, they sell through Copart, and they take some loss, but they also adjust that rate. Do you know what's better off for the insurance company? If you just step back and look at this trend, has that been a net positive or net negative? Obviously they're adjusting things all the time, but curious how they feel about that.
0: So Copart actually every year has a meeting and get together. They gather their insurers together and, and say, Let's talk about the business, talk about the industry. How can we change things, do things differently? They've seen it as a net plus. It's another avenue for them to recoup money and lower their costs. Go back to your vehicle. Okay. They, they've insured you and they need to make you whole. If they have a way of getting better economics out of that, that's better for them. The other thing too, I think there's so many factors that are involved with this. Repair costs are another thing. So just depending on repair prices and used vehicle prices, all of these things fluctuating in the repair market, we've seen some consolidation. Happening. So now you have more powerful folks on that side of the equation. So maybe they have less bargaining power there. So there's just all these factors kind of get thrown into the mix. But over time, the business has just continued to prove its worth.
1: People always talk about the shortage of truckers. There's a shortage of mechanics big time. And that drives the cost of repairs quite higher, in addition to the equipment cost that's associated with those repairs. So you get it from both sides. I'm curious, when you, from an investment perspective, think about valuing this business, it seems pretty straightforward in terms of how earnings convert to cash flow. There's some general sense in terms of how much capital is going into the business. So when you step back and think about valuation, what type of framework do you use for this business? And what do you think most investors use when thinking about this business?
0: I think it's pretty simple, simple, but not easy it's being valued at 45 billion. Full disclosure, I do own shares. It's one of these companies where you just hold on for dear life. You might not want to buy more, but you certainly don't want to sell it. I've been tempted. It's one of these businesses that always looks too expensive, but then it just seems to just continue to click on.
1: And are you using priced Earnings or DCF or any other multiple or specific metric when you say screen's expensive?
0: So if you just look at a valuation using 2022 numbers, they have net operating profit after tax, NOPAT of about a billion dollars. So EBIT, and I've used a 25% tax rate. If you just divide that into the market cap, you get single digit yields.
1: Low single digit, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Single digit yield, double digit ratio. So you're going to have even if they distributed all of their cash, you'd get a pretty low yield. Now, using round numbers, if you use a 10% discount rate, that's going to imply growth of pretty significant single-digit, mid-to-high single-digit growth in perpetuity. The business is earning after-tax, pre-tax about 40%, call it 30% after-tax return on capital, to grow at 6 or 8% it's going to require maybe 25% of earnings. So they could still distribute a couple of percentage points and make that growth. But again, just looking at the U S is largely saturated. Although you can make the case that full car has the potential to be very big for them. International has the potential to be very big. So if you assume modest growth over 10 years and then just put a cap on year 10 and discount it back, say a 15% growth of the first 10 years, and then discount it back, you might come out to something of around 25 billion, which I think is what I had in my analysis. It's not one of these ones. And the way I value businesses is not to that level of precision. You can see the cash flow that they're generating. You see the risks that they have, but you also see this expansion. I mean, if you assume that international operating margins go from 25% to 40%, Now your distributable cash goes a billion two or something. Nothing I'm saying is investment advice, but there's a risk that when you put too fine a point on it, it would lead you to pass when you just take a step back and you look at economic moat that this this business has. You look at this win-win-win equation, this model that they've created. You look at the management, the way that they treat the business, the way they treat growth, the way they've approached it, the way they approach capital allocation and returning capital to shareholders. All of these things lead you to say, this is a business that I don't want to part with.
1: We always close this conversation out with the lessons that could be applied elsewhere. So what makes this business special that you might look for in other businesses or what's unique about the research and analysis that went into Copart that you think you could apply elsewhere? How would you respond to that in terms of major lessons here?
0: I think I'd point to two things. One quantitative, one qualitative. Qualitative one I mentioned earlier. I guess I'd characterize it as a management team that's unafraid of Wall Street. It's this clue that they truly own the business. Literally, in the case of Willis Johnson, Jay Adair, who's his son-in-law, they own the business. They know the business inside and out. Give you that number, even though we don't use it internally. We're buying all of this land and we're going to continue to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on land, even though we don't run a calculation to tell you exactly how much it's worth. There's a level of confidence, but they don't cross the line into arrogance, which I think is subtle. And you can't screen for that. The piece there that I think leads me to believe that, well, Copart specifically, but in the other cases, it's not arrogance because sprinkled into all of their comments is a lot of, I don't know. They're not afraid to say, we don't know, or we don't have that number, or we haven't looked at. There's a level of humility there that they know their business, but they're not afraid to say that they don't know. That's the qualitative part of it. The quantitative piece, I've just continually been surprised at the value of capital intensity. So I mentioned IAA taking this capital light route, and you have Capital light being the thing that every business strives for and SaaS businesses and requiring no capital. And certainly there are those businesses that don't require capital that are very, very good businesses, better than Copart. But the specific lesson there is that capital intensity is not a bad thing. This business requires a lot of capital in the form of real estate. You see this play out in other industries like less than truckload, LTL, trucking. So I looked at Old Dominion Freight Line. It's competitors. We compare Old Dominion, creating this network, buying these locations, and look at Yellow, a disaster of a company that's trying to lease. It's incredible to see, instead of outsourcing, you're controlling your own destiny. The aggregates industry, I just looked at them fairly recently. Martin Marietta and Vulcan Materials. Waste management industry, another one. Capital intensity, is the reason why it's such a good business. I think they're just thinking through the implications of it and not blindly saying, okay, well, geez, capital intensity is a bad thing because when you have a very sticky business that generates really good margins, yeah, capital intensity can can actually protect your business.
1: Makes a lot of sense. And very interesting business. Definitely one I had not previously heard of. It's always interesting to see these super niche operators that have dominated things, especially when they've been doing it for decades. And once it comes onto your radar, it's like, how did I miss this previously? So appreciate you taking the time to break this down with us. You're very welcome. This is a lot of fun. To find more episodes
0: of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.